from uh, tech, uh, Tennessee, and uh, he gave a word at one of those big uh, conferences that took place, and it just catapulted him into great uh, notoriety and fame in the Church of Jesus Christ. And it's ama- he has an amazing story because he says all of his life, and he's probably near my age, he has just felt like, Lord, are you ever going to break in? Are you ever going to break through? And he gave that prophetic word, and now there are people all over the world that are tuning in to watch him and listen to the word that he brings, and God is really blessing his ministry. But he said something. Uh, I kind of listened to his uh, Wednesday night devotional. Uh, sometime during the week, I'll catch up with it. It's a 15-minute devotional that's always so good. And he said that if he had his own way, he would cut off the web stream within 50 miles radius of his church because he feels like some people use that as an excuse not to come to church and while we understand that there are those that can't come for health reasons and other legitimate reasons that's wonderful but if there are those that are not coming to church because they'd rather just worship in the comfort of their home they don't know what they're missing because there's something that we receive when we're together in the house of God that you just cannot possibly receive on your sofa while you're having your breakfast. So I thank you who are faithful and those of you who are able to join us by web stream. I know that there are those who say, Pastor, I can't wait to get back to church. We just need to get our health back together and uh, we look forward to that day. And I just want to acknowledge Brother Joe and Sister Dottie. Brother Joe has really been suffering this past week. Uh, His feet are so swollen, he could not even put shoes on this morning, and he's wearing sneakers. But he said, Pastor, I want to be in the house of the Lord on Sunday. And they are always, always, always in the house of God. So I appreciate that kind of faithfulness. Before I share God's word with you this morning, I I read A.W. Tozier this week, and he made the statement that really gripped my heart. You familiar with A.W. Tozier? He belonged to the uh, Christian Missionary Alliance Church, but a man of God who never went to seminary. But his preaching and his messages and his books are still touching people generations later. And it's, uh, he was an amazing man that was used mightily of God. He said this, and it's so relevant because I'm getting ready to preach this morning that it is not mere words that nourish the soul, but God himself. So if you're here to hear an eloquent sermon, that's not what is going to nourish your soul. You need to be here this morning to hear from God. For it is only God that can meet and speak to our hearts. And unless and until the hearers find God in personal experience, they are not the better for having heard the word of truth. A very sobering and challenging statement, and it challenges all of us to come to know God. You know, the Apostle Paul was near the end of his life, and his prayer was that I may know him. Somehow, sometimes in our walk, we feel like we've arrived. But the reality is, the more we come to know God, the more we want to know him. 
the more we realize that there's still a void in our hearts that desires to be filled. So may God help us today. Help us today. And this kind of goes along with the fourth beatitude that we are going to be looking at. And the title of my message is, How Hungry Are You? How much are you longing to know God in a deeper way? And the verse of scripture that is obviously very familiar to all of us is found in Matthew uh, chapter five and verse six. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. So Holy Spirit, we need you today. Oh, how we need you today. We know that not one person is here by accident, but you've drawn them by your spirit to encounter them in a fresh and in a new way. And so we pray that through the preaching of your word and by the anointing of the Holy Spirit, that we would encounter the living word who alone has the power to change and transform us and conform us to the image of your son. We submit ourselves to you and we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would speak through these lips of clay and that you would anoint our ears to hear, give us hearts to obey and feet that are swift to do your will. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen. 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 I don't know if you've noticed as we've been looking at the Beatitudes that there is actually a progression as we go from one to the next. They present a kind of a staircase as to how we can grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. When we become the Beatitudes, then we can see that we are conforming to the character of Christ. Or to put it in another analogy, they are like the steps of a ladder. Before we reach the top of a ladder, we must climb that ladder one step at a time. And the first rung of that ladder, as we've been studying in Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, the upside-down kingdom that is teaching us that everything that the world says is upside right is really upside-down. And the first rung of that ladder is becoming poor in spirit. For Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Who obtains the kingdom of heaven? Those who are poor in spirit. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? It means to be destitute. It means to be dirt poor bankrupt and hopeless and helpless outside of the grace of God. It means that we understand our low estate. We understand that we have nothing, nothing, nothing in and of ourselves whereby we can commend ourselves to God. And we recognize that it is only through Jesus Christ as we acknowledge our emptiness and see the depth of our depravity, that we could come into the kingdom of God. 
and to uh, have, once again, a wonderful relationship with God our Father. So if a person cannot come to grips with their need of a Savior because they, they are deep in sin, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I don't care if you were raised in a family of churchgoers who were really devoted and really committed to the body of Jesus Christ. You know, God has no grandchildren. And uh, we, we could have godly parents and godly grandparents, but unless you and I have our own encounter, and if we think that because of their merit that somehow we can gain favor with God, we are sadly and sorely mistaken. We need a savior. And so people who think, well, I'm okay, I'm no worse than the next guy, they really don't understand that Jesus came to call sinners to repentance, not the righteous. And those that are self-righteous will never experience the grace of God. So that's the first step. It's this destitution. I, we, I have nothing to bring only my sin-sick soul, with a yes in my heart to you, Lord Jesus, committing myself to you, bowing beneath your lordship, committing my entire life to you. That is the first step. And then we come to the second step where the scripture says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. See, once we get the revelation of our sinfulness, the result is sorrow. But it's not the sorrow of the world, it's a godly sorrow that leads us to repentance. It's a heartbroken sorrow and a contrite spirit that brings us to God. And without that deep sorrow and that deep repentance where we now have a change of mind, a change of direction, we will never ever experience the grace of God as God would have us to know it. And you know, when someone comes to the altar and they're really pouring their heart out to God, weeping and mourning and crying, it is not our place to pat them on the shoulder and to say, oh, be comforted. It's all going to be all right. You know, when we lose someone we love or something we love, we mourn. And in the same way, we need to mourn over our sinfulness. We need to mourn over that which has been lost because of our sinfulness, because of what we have suffered by the sin that we've committed, by the rebellion that has been in our hearts against God. Lost years, lost opportunities, lost relationships, and sometimes because of sin, even lost families mourning over where we were heading and what could have been. Do you ever think about that? Do you ever say, Lord Jesus, had it not been for your grace, I, I don't even want to think of the pit that I would have been in. I don't even want to think of the depravity that my soul would be wallowing in. I would not even want to think of the hopelessness of my life. It's the grace 
of God. And there are times that it's so appropriate and it's so needful that we, we could bless the heart of God and bless our own hearts as we acknowledge God had it not been for your goodness and your grace. And most of all, we mourn because we see as we look upon the cross that it was my evil sin. It was my selfishness. It was my rebellion. It was my hard-hearted heart that wanted to do its own thing and go its own way that put Jesus on that cross. And we mourn for that sin. Those that mourn then climb to the next rung of the ladder where Jesus says, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth, when we see who we are in our very core and the wretchedness of our sin, we come to have a very different opinion of ourselves. We, we don't uh, walk around like we're the cock of the walk anymore. We see the pit from which we've been dug. We see the change that only Jesus can bring into our lives. We come to understand that I am what I am only by the grace of God. And we also see others in a different light. We're not so quick to judge. We're not so quick to condemn. We're not so quick to be so self-righteous. But we have this humble and gentle disposition. And most of all, as we walk with God, regardless of the experiences that come into our lives, we take his yoke upon us. We take what Jesus was, meek and lowly, and we learn of him. We walked the path that he tread. What did it mean? It meant doing the will of God. And what did the will of God mean? It meant going to the cross. And do you think today that because Jesus went to the cross, you and I do not have to go to the cross? We are sadly mistaken. For Jesus said, if any man will come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. We follow him to Calvary, where we die to ourselves, where we die to what we think, we die to what we feel, we die to what we want, and we say, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. I want you to be glorified what did Jesus say when he came to that place where he was about to drink the cup father what shall I say deliver me from this hour no but for this hour I have come so father glorify your name glorify your name when we're when we're sick and when we're down and when God has allowed some reversals to come into our lives understand God doesn't author anything that is evil anything that is dark anything that is sinful but God does allow hard places to come to us did not the apostle Paul say it is through many tribulations that we enter into the kingdom of God and it's through those tribulations that God is saying, I'm molding you, I'm shaping you, I'm conforming you. And so we say, we should be saying, Lord, glorify your name. Thank you, Father, that you're allowing me to go through this experience. You're allowing me to go through this valley because it's making me more and more like you. That's meekness. We exercise strength under control. 
Oh yeah, we have the willpower to do what we want to do, but we say, no, not my will, but yours be done. And in that place, God can direct us. God can lead us into pastures that are green. God can uh, lead us into a place of blessed fruitfulness and prosperity. And so in this state of meekness, we then climb to the next rung of the ladder as we hear Jesus say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. What a wonderful promise. So first, we need to define what Jesus means by righteousness. Righteousness is a word that as Christians, we hear over and over and over again, don't we? That we're called to live righteous lives. And as you read God's word, you, you see that word over and over and over again. This righteousness is something that God defines. It's not for us to define what's right or what's wrong. I know the world is doing that. And so sadly, the masses whose minds have been darkened, whatever the world says, they're woke. Oh, I can't condemn that sin because that is being prejudiced. I can't say anything about that kind of lifestyle because that would not be loving. That would not be kind. Righteousness what says the word of God? What says that which comes out of the mouth of God? That is the word that we need to embrace and adhere to. That is what is righteous. Only God alone can dictate what is right or wrong because it's based on his character. It's based on his nature. It's based on his truth and not what the new morality might say. The Blue Letter Bible defines righteousness, first of all, as being in a position that is acceptable to God. We can't be acceptable to God unless we're living right and that he sees we're living in alignment with what, who he is and what he says and also living a life that is right, that is marked by integrity, virtue, purity, rightness, correctness of thinking, feeling, and acting. And you know, in our lives, righteousness is the most needful thing to us. Why? Because we're born in sin. Every single one of us, born in sin. You look at an innocent little baby and you say, how can they be a sinner? Well, let them grow up into the twos and it becomes very, very manifest. When you say, mommy, daddy says no, and they say no. And they do what they want to do. It's the sinful nature that is inherent in all of us. We can't in and of ourselves fulfill the law of God's word. But that's why Jesus came. Jesus came to take our sin so that we can now become his righteousness. The theologians call it the imputation of righteousness. It's nothing that we can earn. It's nothing that we can conjure up. It's nothing that we can do. Oh, I'll go to church five times a week. I'll read my Bible uh, three hours a day. I'll pray four hours a day. I'll give money. I'll do this. I'll do that. That'll never make you righteous. 
That's your righteousness, and your righteousness, if you're standing on it, is as filthy rags in God's sight. There is only way, one way, that we can be righteous, and that is when Jesus puts his righteousness into our spirit so that now we stand before God as righteous. He does not see us in our sin. He does not see us in our weakness. He sees us in his son, Jesus Christ. Isn't that what the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5 and 21? For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's called positional righteousness. See, when, when we ask Jesus into our heart, when we repent of our sin, he changes our position. We were once in darkness, now we're brought into the light. We were once full of a, a spirit and a mind that was darkened and a heart that was at enmity against God. Now it's pure and it's holy and it's righteous in the sight of God. Reminds me of that song that we used to sing. He is all my righteousness. Paul says in Corinthians, Christ is made unto you righteousness. I don't know about you, but that thrills me. I can't be righteous in myself, but Jesus Christ puts his righteousness in me, and now when God sees me, now when I come before the throne of God, I'm accepted. Why? Because I'm sinless? No, but because I stand in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's the life that Jesus lived in perfect obedience to God the Father. That, that every commandment was obeyed, every temptation was resisted, every opportunity to please God was fulfilled. Jesus lived that sinless life, that perfectly righteous life, that life that now he gives to you and to me. And so when God sees us, he sees us as the righteousness of his son. But you know, when that righteousness gets imputed, he changes so much. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things pass away and all things become new. Not overnight. And some of us get messed up there because we say, I thought I gave my heart to Jesus. Why am I still tempted in this, this area? This is a progressive thing. It's called sanctification. As we walk with God faithfully, he is continually working in us, conforming us, chipping away those rough places and making us beautiful in the sight of God in our soul. See, our soul needs a progressive salvation. Our spirit is instantly changed when we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. But how we think, how we feel, what we want, that is something that is progressive that needs to take place. But this is the change that happens. Now I want to go God's way. That temptation, yes, it's there. But I don't just thoughtlessly fall into it like I always did. Now it's, wait a minute, that doesn't feel right, that doesn't look right, that is something that is hitting my spirit wrong. Why? Because the Spirit of God is dwelling in you, and God is calling you to righteousness, so you say no to that temptation, you close your eyes to that lust, you move in God's direction instead of the direction of the flesh, and where the enemy wants to take you, and this is called practical righteousness. 
We have positional righteousness when we accept Christ as our Savior, but we have practical righteousness as we walk this pilgrim pathway and walk in the way that God calls us to according to his word. What does the Apostle Paul say in Romans 6 and 18? You have been set free from sin and now have become slaves to righteousness. Did you hear that, saints? Delivered, set free from that, those chains of sin that held us in bondage. We, before Christ, we had no choice. We just did what, whatever came natural to us, natural to this flesh, natural to this darkened mind, natural to the darkened will. But when we come to Christ, he changes the trajectory of our lives. But as I read that verse of scripture, I asked myself, this is how it's supposed to work. This is what God's word says. We've been set free and now have become slaves to righteousness. But do we demonstrate that kind of slavery to righteousness? I read these words by Charles Spurgeon that really pricked my heart. It's not enough for me to know that my sin is forgiven. Why? Because I have a fountain of sin within my heart and bitter waters continually flow from it. Oh, that my nature could be changed so that I, the lover of sin, see, in our carnal state, if we are not staying close to Jesus, if we're not in the word, if we're not in prayer, if we're not in fellowship with the saints, that old propensity to sin. See, even though the, the, the old man dies, he has the ability to be raised up again. We need to reckon every day of our life. Paul said, I die daily. He knew if he did not die daily, the carnal nature would want to rise up again. And so as he says, as a lover of sin, oh, that my nature could be changed so that I could be made a lover instead of that which is good, that I now, full of evil, can become full of goodness and holiness. And that's the pattern that God calls us to. Jesus calls his disciples in this beatitude to that very standard, to hunger and to thirst after righteousness. But I ask myself and I ask you this morning, do we qualify? Can we say of us that we are hungering and thirsting after righteousness for it is only those who hunger and thirst that they shall be filled. You know, Jesus is making quite a statement here. Since hunger and thirst represent those things that are crucial and critical to our very existence. Without food, without drink, we could not sustain our existence. We would die. I know you could go how many days without food, how many days without water, but if you continue on that path, you will die. And in the same way that a starving person has this singular, all-consuming passion, were you ever so hungry that you felt whatever came your way, you would eat it? Oh, I'll, I'll go to McDonald's. I'm that hungry, that, that, 
whatever kind of meat that is in that hamburger will taste mighty good because you are so, so hungry. But that's the kind of hunger that Jesus is telling us in this beatitude. It's something that consumes us. It's something that all, that's all we could think about. You ever working in your, in your yard, in the hot sun, that you could not wait, you felt like you just couldn't wait to get into the house because you needed a drink so bad. And when you poured that glass of water, you guzzled it down in a second because your body was so craving for that necessary fluid because you were becoming dehydrated. Is that what's happening in our spiritual lives? Do we have that kind of ravenous appetite that says, I- I'm just, I'm so hungry. You know, it's hard for us to really relate to that kind of hunger and the natural because we're, we're living in the West where we're living in a, a land as poor as the poorest person is. There's, there's always food to eat for the most part. But in the Bible times and in Jesus' day, people pretty much lived from hand to mouth. In fact, one of the Proverbs says, the laborer's appetite works for him. His hunger drives, why did he go to work? Not to buy a new suit of clothes. He went to work because he knew if he didn't work, he wouldn't eat. He, he was hungry for his next meal, so he went out to work. So understand, Jesus is talking about a profound hunger that isn't satisfied with just a little snack. It's a longing that endures and will never end until we are on the other side of eternity. You could be in the most glorious church service ever. And a couple of Sundays ago, we had one of those services. It was just glorious. But are you still living on that manifestation of the glory of God? No way is that what God had given us on that Sunday could still be nurturing our soul. Yeah, the memory of it is glorious. But man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. It requires a daily hunger on our parts to hear what God has to say so our soul could be nurtured, so that we could be fed, so that we could be equipped, so that we could be built up, so that we could do what God has called us to do, not in our strength, but in his strength. For it is not by might, it is not by power, it is by my spirit, says the Lord. And if we are not hungering after God, we'll do it in our flesh and it'll fall flat on our face. How thirsty are we? Jesus said, the water that I give, you'll never thirst again. But it's water that he continually gives to those who are thirsty for him. It's very significant to note as we look at this passage of scripture, the verb tense that is used, and it's indicative of that continual hunger and a continual thirst. It's the kind of insatiable hunger and thirst that was often expressed by the psalmist. And as I read these words, they become so familiar to us 
But can we say that we can identify with the cry of the heart of the psalmist? In Psalm 42 and verse 2, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Psalm 63, O oh God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and a weary land where there is no water. So I have looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory, recognizing that would be the only thing that would satisfy the longing of his heart. Psalm 143, I spread out my hands to you. My soul longs for you like a thirsty land. What does a thirsty land do? It drinks in the water. It drinks in the water. That's the heart that Jesus delights in satisfying such a hunger. And did not Jesus say, I am the bread of life? He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. As we demonstrate that kind of hunger. As I was reading those verses, I was thinking, you know, especially on a fast day, after, after you know, fasting a few meals, by a certain time, you know, you just really get hungry. Am I hungry enough ever to say, God, I'm more hungry for you than I am for that next meal, and I just want to spend the time that I would have spent at the dinner table with my wife to just be with you. That's the kind of hunger when we're willing to say no to things that satisfy this flesh and instead to say yes to God. And if we're not that hungry, then we don't understand this beatitude because that's the kind of hunger, that's the kind of desperation, that's the kind of longing that the Lord is looking for. Well, you notice the Greek construction of these words where the emphasis and the direct object here is the righteousness that we are to be hungry for. That's the object that we're, we're to be going after with hunger and with thirst. But this is not a partial righteousness. And I think this is where we mess up in our Christian life. Because we look at ourselves and we say, well, you know, I'm, I'm doing pretty good here and I'm doing pretty good there and, you know, not so good here, not so good there. But, you know, I'm, overall I'm doing pretty good, especially when I, I compare myself to brother so-and-so and sister so-and-so. I'm in church every Sunday. I see them once every four weeks. You know, it's, it's easy for us to compare ourselves one to another. But when Jesus is speaking about this righteousness, he is speaking about not just a bite from that bread, but I want the whole loaf. He's not talking about just a, a portion of a little glass of water. I want the whole pitcher full. That's how hungry I am. That's how thirsty I am. Do we long for all that Jesus has for us? We get up in the morning, is our first thought, Lord, thank you for waking me up today. I just want to spend some time with you. Or, or do we go to our phone and go to our Facebook and go to things that, you know, satisfy our, our more our carnal nature? We're cheating ourselves. Jesus is at our door knocking. 
knocking. Behold, I stand at your door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and I'll sup with him. There's no fellowship like the fellowship of sitting at the table of Jesus and having him nurture us and feed us and show us the delights of his love. God is longing to pour into us. And he says, if you hunger and thirst after me in that way, then you shall. There's no doubt about it. There are no ands, ifs, or buts. It is unequivocal, they shall be filled. This is the reward of this level of hunger. Complete satisfaction. To be satiated. Do you ever get up from a Thanksgiving dinner? <laughs> and you feel like, I don't think I'm ever going to want to eat again. Of course, uh, when your wife says, who wants a turkey sandwich in the evening? And we're hungry again. <laughs> but see, Jesus satisfies us like nothing else could ever satisfy. And that's the delusion of sin. It tells, if you do this, you're going to feel satisfied. Well, you feel satisfied for a moment. You feel satisfied for a split second maybe, and then you feel empty all over again. You feel dark, you feel dirty, you feel shamed. Why did I do that? But then the devil tells you again, oh, if only you try this, this, this will satisfy you. And it's an ever-spiraling downward. The enemy always takes us further than we want to go. And the punishment and the penalty is more than we ever bargained for. It is only Jesus that can truly satisfy that emptiness that is in our soul as we hunger and as we thirst after him. The word that is translated here is filled, filled. And it's an interesting Greek word because it literally means to be fed up, but not fed up in the sense that I'm at my wit's end, but in the sense of I've tasted, I've seen, <laughs> I'm satiated. I believe it was Dwight L. Moody who experienced the glory of God in such a way in one experience that he said, God, stay your hand. Please, no more. This human frame cannot receive anymore. <laughs> Have any of us felt that way? But there are so many more opportunities for us to feel that way because God will only fill us to the extent that we desire him, to the extent that we are longing after him. R.C. Sproul puts it this way, it's the pursuit of God that is never a part-time weekend exercise. And in this 21st century, especially in this West, so many Christians think that if they go to church on Sunday, they've done their duty, they're now labeled as Christians, and it just affirms their Christianity, and the rest of the week, it's all about what they want, what they're doing, their agenda. Very little time for God. If they could squeeze in five minutes, they squeeze in that five minutes. It's not a weekend exercise. Abiding is what God calls us to, and it requires a kind of staying power. This pursuit is relentless. 
It hungers and it thirsts. It pants as the deer pants after the water brooks. It takes the kingdom by storm. The pursuit of God is a pursuit of passion. And indifference will never do. You know why indifference will never do? Because indifference is costly. I'm reminded of King Joash in 2 Kings, Kings verse thir- beginning, beginning in verse 13. He was on the verge of war and the prophet Elijah was sick and probably very close to death. And he comes crying to the prophet. O man of God, the chariots of Israel and the horsemen thereof. In other words, we're in desperate situation here. We're on the verge of war. I don't know what to do. The army outnumbers us. There is no way in in, in any human strategy we could ever outwit the enemy or outbeat the enemy. And so by a prophetic act, the prophet tells him to take an arrow and to shoot it outside of the eastern window. And he places his hand on the hand of King Joash as he pulls that bow back. And he says, shoot. And the scripture says, and he shot. And Elijah declared this prophetic word, the arrow of the Lord, and declared victory over the Syrians. And then he says, Joash, take the arrows from your quiver and strike them on the ground. And King Joash took the arrows. three times, nonchalantly, striking those arrows. And the Bible says that the prophet became angry with him for his lack of zeal and passion to utterly destroy the Syrians. And he said, because you only struck the ground three times, you will not be able to conquer the Syrians, which required a sevenfold victory. You should have struck seven times. And I thought, how is it in our lives that we're so nonchalant about the things of God? We say we want victory in our life, but we don't spend any time in prayer. We don't spend any time in the Word. We don't get our minds aligned with the Word. We don't say, Paul Spuler, God says to you, you are more than conqueror through him who has loved you. When do we get zealous and start declaring with a heart that is full of the passion and the fire of God, this is who I am, this is what God says about me this is what God says I have in him this is my portion and then we wonder why am I defeated why don't I get my breakthrough all we want to do is have a pity party all we want to do is walk around crying in our soup and wanting people to feel sorry for us that we've had such a hard lot in life If you are a child of God and you've accepted Jesus Christ into your heart as personal Lord and Savior, God is giving you everything that pertains to life and to godliness. But we need to pick ourselves up by our bootstraps and say, it is God who works in me both to do and to will of his good pleasure. And I'm going to cooperate with my God. I'm going to do his will. I'm going to walk in his way. I'm going to say no to that sin and I'm going to say yes to Jesus. Hunger and thirst, it must continue unabated. 
This pursuit needs to be a tenacious pursuit because a weak grasp will never do. Are we really disciples of the kingdom? Jesus is talking to kingdom people in the Beatitudes. He's saying you need to be people who are always starving for righteousness, for doing what is right, living what is right, living and reflecting my righteousness that is in you. And when you have this kind of passionate hunger and desire that is demonstrated in a zeal, then you will be filled. So, saints of God, how hungry and how thirsty are we today? How hungry and how thirsty are we today? And you know, I want to confess to you that it takes discipline. But God gives us the will. He wants to see if we really desire him. He wants to see if we're really hungry. What do you do when you're hungry? You stop at nothing to stuff your mouth with food because that stomach is growling and you want to you fill, you want to quench that desire so it no, it's not, not churning and paining you and, and causing you to cry out, I'm, I'm miserable, I'm cranky, I need food, I need drink. God is saying, are you that hungry for me? Are you hungry enough to turn off the TV? Instead of spending two hours watching a movie, can you spend a half an hour in my presence? Can you demonstrate that you really want me? Because if you do, I'm here for you. And all that I have, I want to pour into you so that you could be filled up. You, you leave the presence of God in that moment and there's nothing more you want. You're just walking in the glory. You're living in the glory until the next day when you just demonstrate hunger and thirst all over again. God, yesterday was glorious, but I, I need a fresh portion today. We don't live off of yesterday's meals, do we? We eat all over again <laughs> and we, we drink all over again because this body needs it. So does this soul. More of God. Oh God, oh God, I realize today that I'm not in practical righteousness all that I ought to be. And I know I'll never achieve that until I'm perfected in heaven. But I love this old Scottish prayer. Oh God, make just as holy as a pardoned sinner can ever be. I'm a pardoned sinner, but make me just as holy as you can. And he will do that for us. And our lives will live more righteously and will bring more honor and glory to Jesus. But it takes a hunger and it takes a thirst. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. We're going to close with a prayer from a song that just expresses the cry of our heart. More of you. I want more of you. I want us to stand. If you wish to come to the altar this morning, this is your opportunity to come to the altar. But let's make this the prayer of our heart as media helps us with putting that song on. And uh, we're just going to ask the Lord in the quiet of your own heart to just ask the Lord, Lord, increase the hunger, increase the thirst of my heart.